episode 114, I think. Fids. A tavern by any other name would smell of scones and tea and rum and dog tracery. Hello, Ice Coffee listeners. Episode 114 addresses the fids that followed the Tabarinos in the south and arises as Rupert Murdoch, Mark Zuckerberg, Google and the Australian Federal Government engage in a four-way race to see who can treat the Australian population with the least respect and dignity as the days shorten dramatically from day to day in the run-up to the equinox. And a member of that Federal Government stands accused of serial sexual molestation of women in the Liberal Party and other members of the Government stand accused of covering that matter up so as to not fuck their chances in the election they faced. Meanwhile, Jacinda Ardern led her nation, refusing an early dose of COVID-19 vaccine because she's not a frontline healthcare worker or care provider and doesn't fit any of the high-risk health categories. I've missed living in New Zealand a lot in the past 14 years, but never more so than in this past week. But enough about hell and handbaskets and the shortest path to maximum dogs. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay in Queenscliff, waiting for my ride. I only just got my hands on a long-awaited copy of Of Ice and Men by Sir Vivian Fuchs, and it features a lot of information I wish I'd accessed for episodes about Operation Tavern, but no conceptual morsel more so than the job advertisement featured in the first edition of the Hope Bay Howler in 1945, which I quote here in full. Bright young man for the Antarctic, must have knowledge of botany, zoology, ornithology, surveying, taxidermy, geology, oxometry, etc. German and French essential. Must be able to type, operate radio set, light fires, clean drains, build houses and drive dogs. Sound knowledge of hunting, shooting and fishing expected. Salary despicable, prospects nil. Please write and state any additional qualifications. Minor digression. Oxometry is the study of bullshit, the first doctoral degree in the field going to the Australian poet Ern Malley. You get the idea that the Tabarinos didn't feel fully appreciated by those working the back end of operations, and this tone of affronted and unwilling ignorance carried on for some time, some BAS personnel assuring me that it's the case to this day, the general sentiment being encapsulated in the oft-spoken lament, no one ever tells me anything. Though I don't think any subsequent tranche of British personnel in the Antarctic got given the mushroom treatment to the same extent as those returning north under the leadership of Andrew Taylor. The disappointing coda experienced by members of Operation Tabron didn't mesh with the enthusiasm with which British government money and personnel would head south in the years that followed, occupying space, spreading their presence, sometimes wafer thin, around the Antarctic Peninsula and the Scotia Arc and franking mail out of each base as per every other Antarctic territorial startup of the era. And doing some science, but that's a byproduct of other initiatives. With Brian Roberts in charge of the UK end and Ted Bingham at the helm of the next chapter of field operations of what the powers that be rebranded the Falkland Island Dependency Survey, the baseline research carried out by the Tabarinos and the baseline bases built by them would form the basis of many subsequent years of occupation and science by FIDS, which became the plural noun for members of the FIDS, as well as the acronym denoting the overall project. A single member of the FIDS is referred to as a FID, and the label carried over when the organisation became the British Antarctic Survey, 
so you can expect to hear it a lot in future episodes of this series. Britain finally gave up the idea that discovery alone meant much in the eyes of other nations when marking territorial claims in an actual terra nullius, as opposed to the occupied spaces they'd previously called terra nullius, based largely on whether or not the locals wore pants up to the British standard of lower limb coverage. They grudgingly got on board with the Hughes Doctrine, but threw themselves at it with considerable will and resources. Fids would still draw stores from the naval depots and warehouses, but invoices for those stores went to the colonial office, and a lot of what they drew from those depots in the lead-up to the first iteration of the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey circumvented normal bureaucratic channels because Ted Bingham already knew how to play the game and where to apply pressure to get results otherwise tied up in red tape or lost in bureaucratic translation, his name quickly becoming associated with adverse outcomes among naval fiddlers. My resources regarding the first FIDs in the South immediately following Operation Tabarin, besides Sir Vivian Fuchs of Ice and Men, comprises two copies of the same book by Eric William Kevin Walton. And I offered to give one copy away back in episode 112, but no one got in touch with the correct answer. So either I made the question too hard, or no one who downloads the episodes actually listens to them, or people didn't know the answer to the question, or people who did know the answer to the question thought they were too late to get a look in, so I'll give you a clue. I first heard the song in question as non-diegetic music in the BBC television series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Get back to episode 112, sort out your answer and get in touch to claim your copy of Two Years in the Antarctic. Since I'm drawing heavily on Kevin Walton's writing for this episode, I should give him some individual attention, a posthumous mark of respect for one of my favourite High Latitudes authors. Walton's involvement in the FIDs stems back to his war service in the Royal Navy and his interest in being cold and pushing himself physically stems back even further. Walton's godfather, Howard Somerville, took part in the British attempt on Everest in 1922, which saw seven Sherpas die in an avalanche because of British stubbornness, and in 1924, which saw George Mallory and Andrew Irvine die in their attempt on the summit because of British stubbornness. Somerville's passion for mountaineering rubbed off on his godson. In 1940, while serving aboard the battleship HMS Rodney, Kevin Walton sought out Launcelot Fleming, veteran of Juno Watkins' project in Greenland and of the British Graham Land expedition in Antarctica, then serving as chaplain aboard the HMS Queen Elizabeth. Walton picked Fleming's brain about his high-latitudes experiences and asked for advice on how to get a berth in such a project after the war ended. Fleming knew the power brokers in such matters, and either dropped the names the younger man picked up, or put a word in someone's ear in the best traditions of the British old boys clubs. Walton got noticed. Meanwhile, Walton served as engineering officer aboard the destroyer HMS Onslow, receiving the Distinguished Service Cross for his untiring efforts and ingenuity expressed in keeping the ship damaged in an engagement against German cruisers in the Barents Sea afloat long enough to reach port for repairs. And Walton's name came up when the shape of post-war British projects in Antarctica began to coalesce. Orders arrived on the Royal Navy destroyer Resolute, patrolling the Indian Ocean, on the 23rd of October 1945. Quote, If Walton is still a volunteer for two years in Antarctica, he should be flown home forthwith. End quote. 
Walton turned up at his family home in England unannounced and carrying a bunch of bananas two days later. That's not slang or a euphemism. He took bananas home because no one in England saw such exotica in the war years, and it seemed a good use of his baggage allowance. He interviewed with Ted Bingham at the FID's temporary offices in Charing Cross, and, having landed a slot in the Antarctic off the back of that interview, departed England again on the 9th of November, with little to no hope of scoring his parents further bananas on his new two-year assignment. Joining him in the team slated to winter at Marguerite Bay were Robbie Slesser, a naval doctor specialising in midwifery, who headed to Labrador to select that season's new husky stock and to see to the dog's health in the transit through the tropics, Reg Freeman and Dougie Mason of the Royal Engineers, who joined as surveyors, Willie Salter, who signed on as meteorologist, Army Captain John Joyce to serve as geologist, Signals Officer Kenneth Butler, who joined as radio operator, while Kevin Walton was joined in the dog's body role by Major Mike Sadler and John Tonkin of the Long Range Desert Group, precursor of the Special Air Service. Tonkin parachuted into trouble regularly during the war, going behind enemy lines in operations Torch, Husky and Overlord. He escaped from Italian capture on the advice of an Italian general and fellow para, concerned that as a commando, Tonkin would be taken to Germany for execution. He walked half the length of Italy to rejoin his squadron, and then parachuting into Normandy a day ahead of the D-Day landings. He directed an airstrike to destroy the fuel designated for the 2nd SS Panzer Division, crippling their attempts to rout the US forces put ashore in France. A month after the landings, Tonkin's unit were ambushed. 31 of his men were executed by Nazis and buried in a mass grave in a forest in Saint-Sauvain. Tonkin evaded capture and continued engaging in acts of sabotage behind the German lines until recalled to the UK after another month in France. Six members of the unit returned alive, one of them receiving a court-martial for the suspected betrayal that led to the ambush. Walton numbered among the first Allied personnel to enter the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp on its liberation from Nazi control. He heard about the FIDs while in Norway and made his interest known. Ted Bingham's primary remit for the new iteration of British presence in Antarctica focused on establishing the mooted base E in Marguerite Bay, plans abandoned the previous Austral summer on James Marr's resignation from the leadership of Operation Tabarin. Three ships formed the maritime transport of this new British chapter in the south. The Fitzroy, which reprised its role by taking time off from its regular roster of transits between the Falklands, Montevideo and South Georgia. The William Scoresby, still at a loose end after the Discovery Institute effectively disbanded at the start of the war. And the MV Trapassi, which I just learnt was the first vessel built in Newfoundland to receive radar as part of its original fit-out and once more commanded by the indomitable Captain Shepard, whom the Taverns held in very high regard after showing his mettle in both staying with his command in spite of severe injury, and in saving his ship and its crew from near certain wrecking and doom at Hope Bay the previous Austral summer. Sub-Lieutenant Tom O'Sullivan accompanied Slesser to Labrador, and the pair sailed down the coast, purchasing what dogs the Inuit communities made available to them at a price of 30 shillings per dog and 4 pounds per bitch. 
this translating to $7.50 and $10 respectively in the local coin. Word of the dog prospectors spread ahead of them, and all the best animals were spirited into the hinterland, leaving Slessor and O'Sullivan to make selections from among the discards. But a crap husky is a better working dog than the best whippet, and I'll leave that little foreshadowing note there for you to make of what you will. Slessor and O'Sullivan found the dogs aggressive, but heard from locals in Newfoundland during a quarantine period that they seemed far more sedate than the cohort taken south by the BGLE. The men gradually gained the dog's trust and cleaned them up during their isolation and got them the jabs that would circumvent the sort of disease outbreaks that wreaked havoc in some other dog cohorts kept in close quarters on a long voyage through the full range of sea surface temperatures. By the time the ship made ready for its Atlantic voyage, the discards were in far better form and fettled for Slessor and O'Sullivan's care. I think I'll just pause there and let this bus buck off. Slessor acting on detailed instructions provided by Ted Bingham, purchased a scrap marine boiler in Newfoundland and saw it fitted into the hold of the Trepassi to act as an extra freshwater tank, ensuring enough water to keep the dogs hydrated and, to some extent, washed on their transit through the tropics. Between that and the distemper shots, the Fids dogs comprised the best cared for huskies to arrive in the south to date. It doesn't take a lot to be the best when you're still emerging from the dark ages of dog maintenance, but Bingham was a husky devotee, and Slessor treated the responsibilities his leader passed on to him with laudable gravity. One animal ate a load of old rope ends someone put aside for corking, and two others died of ingesting more sailcloth than is healthy for a mammal, but these remained the only canine deaths during the voyage south. By the time the Trapassi reached the Falklands, replacements already arrived in the form of six puppies. This Labradorian corps and the 25 dogs still at Hope Bay, supplemented with occasional outsiders for genetic diversity over the decades, served as the basis for FIDS sledge teams for the half century that followed. New FIDS flew to Lisbon to join the SS Empire Might, an aircraft ferrying ship commissioned in 1941 for the Ministry of War Transport and slated for sale to private enterprise after completing its round trip to Montevideo. The FIDS transferred to the William Scoresby for the leg to Stanley, while the Trapassi took on stores shipped south by the Paraguay, following to Stanley a few days later, and the Fitzroy followed with the last of the stores and personnel on the 28th of December. In 1946, the governorship of the Falkland Islands passed from Sir Alan Wolsey Cardinal to Geoffrey Miles Clifford, another enthusiastic supporter of British interests in the far south. While considered controversial among the Falkland Islanders of the era, bringing, as he did, universal suffrage and air transport to the islands, among other newfangled work of the deal, he took considerable interest in the remit the Falkland Islands Dependencies afforded him, and the opportunities the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey afforded the Falkland Islands. The William Scoresby, the Trapassi, and the Fitzroy rendezvoused in Stanley and transshipped stores and dogs and personnel to try to make a logical layering of materials to offload while visiting the various bases in the sequence Bingham thought optimal. The William Scoresby, the Trapassi and the Fitzroy then rendezvoused in the caldera of Deception Island in January 1946, tying up alongside the oil barge left there the previous summer and still laden with the materials slated for Base E. The dogs went ashore where Fitz personnel killed what seals lay hauled out on the shore of Whalers Bay 
and left the Huskies to their own devices for a month as the ships serviced the existing FIDS bases. Lieutenant J.P. Featherstone moved into Base B as leader for the following winter, with radio operator D.R. Crutchley, S. Newman as cook, and B. Reeve as general hand. I don't like leaving these people with just first initials, but that's all the information I've got. Bingham sent the Fitzroy to Port Lockroy to swap out the winters and resupply Base A. The 1947 wintering party comprised Lieutenant G. F. M. Hardy as meteorologist and base leader, K. A. McLeod as general hand, G. D. Stock as radio operator, and F. White as cook. The Trapassi and William Scoresby took advantage of the shelter offered by Whalers Bay to take on material from the oil barge and to further juggle their cargoes, sufficient to reprovision Hope Bay with 100 tonnes of stores and 10 dogs before heading into the South Orkneys to build a new base on Laurie Island. The Hope Bay contingent for the coming winter comprised Surveyor V.I. Russell as base leader, Dr. Jimmy Andrew as medico, Captain Bill Croft as geologist, Lieutenant John Francis as Assistant Surveyor to Russell, Sub-Lieutenant Tom O'Sullivan as Meteorologist and Dog Specialist, Sub-Lieutenant Alan Reese as Assistant Meteorologist, Lieutenant S. H. Small as Radio Operator, and Dick Wallen as General Hand. At Laurie Island, Commander Bingham selected the best possible site that wasn't already full of Orcadis Station and Argentines and remnants of Bruce's Ormond House. The site was difficult to land stores on in good weather, and impossible to approach safely in bad weather. The Trapassi ground-truthed a submerged rock in one of its passes through the uncharted waters, coming away from the encounter intact, but alert to the shortcomings of the local waterways and their non-existent charts and pilotage guide. But the base was on Laurie Island, and that mattered to the bureaucrats in the United Kingdom and Argentina. On the 3rd of February, the prefab buildings were up, and the post office franked its first mail and radio operator E.T. Cummings and General Hands D. Nicholson and W. Watson, under the leadership of meteorologist Michael Anthony Choice, were ensconced therein. Eighty tons of stores went ashore, and the first radio signal was broadcast out of what came to be known as Base C at Cape Geddes. The Brits were occupying Laurie Island, 42 years after the Scots, and 41 years out of step with the continuing Argentine presence on the prime base site in spite of legal advice from on high that the Laurie Island ship already sailed because of those 41 years. Lawyers be damned though. If they let Laurie Island slip, the whole archipelago might fall to the Argentines, and then the peninsula. Domino theory in the far south, as was the style at the time. Britain learnt from the masters of colonial expansion, the British, so they knew a thing or two about such matters. The Cape Geddes radio broke down a week after the ships left, but they were there. Choice's team repaired the set twice before the recurring problem saw them out of spare parts and ideas, the radio lying unserviceable for the rest of their year on site. On the 22nd of January, the Fitzroy and the Trapassi anchored up in Scotia Bay. Captain Shepard and Commander Bingham dressed into their best uniforms and headed ashore to meet with the residents of Orcadis Station. That year's Argentine contingent proudly showed their visitors around the new accommodations, featuring a furnace feeding a central heating system, a bath, and flushing toilets 
plumbed into a septic tank. The zenith of Antarctic luxury living to that point in history. Heed how much of that luxury hinged on plumbing, and never take the pipes coming into or out of your life for granted. Language barriers, whether real or feigned, precluded detailed political discourse, and the visit passed in a mood of bonhomie, particularly after an Argentine resident received medical treatment aboard the Trapassi. Carrying on to Coronation Island, Bingham put ashore stores at the uninhabited base buildings at Sunder Fjord Bay. The base site was covered in penguins and their guano, and Bingham couldn't countenance ever putting anyone into residence among that noise and fragrance. He gave the building's erectors the benefit of the doubt, figuring perhaps they'd made their selection when the site still lay under sufficient snow to cover the worst excesses of sphenicid excrescences. The base never received residence, and orders eventually came through to dismantle the structures, and the materials went into other FID's developments. On the 15th of November, the Trapassi returned to Deception Island to collect the dogs put ashore there to feed themselves on penguins and seals too slow to get out of harm's way. After their month ashore, the dogs already ran in well-defined packs, and these automatic associations became the basis on which sledge teams were eventually assigned. Also left on shore, Dougie Mason came aboard with survey data sufficient to lay out two runways, one of 800 yards and the other a 350-yard emergency strip. The Bendy runway, used by Sir Hubert in 1928, slumped in the intervening years, much of the surface lying on its side as the waters of Port Forster eroded the sediments beneath it. The Trapassi lay low in the water. Quoting Walton directly, At the best of times, the Trapassi was crowded, for she was designed to carry a crew of nine and now carried thirteen. Add to this, forty-five dogs and a cargo which left thirty tons on deck. Squeeze on forty drums of extra diesel fuel, and the description, deeply laden, begins to have meaning. On top of this, dump the landing scow sitting athwartships with bow and stem projecting over the ship's side. Put the motorboat inside it, and the picture of the expedition ship is almost complete. End quote. From here on, I'm concentrating on East Base goings-on, partly because that's the new and busy centre of attention among the FIDs for that year, but mostly because Walton's book is my main source of information about the FIDs' first season. The Trapassi made a social visit to Port Lockroy, anchoring up in the safe water after crossing the Bransfield Strait. The excess rum ration sent south the previous year fueled a party that ended with the boat returning to the Trapassi under a hail of fire comprising frost-damaged tins of potatoes. Walton blames Tonkin, but the story only came to light in Tonkin's obituary, so Walton may have waited till the SAS hardcase was well and truly dead before handing him the cold potato. The ship then visited the BGLE hut in the Argentine islands, still as sound and as dry as the day Hampton shut up shop and followed his colleagues south to Barry Island for the second winter the expedition spent in Antarctica though lying beneath a cheeky Argentine flag. Argentine sailors wrote on the hut door, 1st de Mayo, Marina de Guerra, Replico, Argentina, Febrero, 1942. But no one understood it, what with the language barrier experienced at Scotia Bay, holding up in the face of this bewildering foreign scribble. While the ship watered, 
Bingham supervised the removal of the Argentine artefacts and graffiti, the stowing of emergency victuals in the hut for the possible use of shipwreck survivors, and finally pinned a notice board and flag on the interior walls to mark his second coming. As did Captain Ryder aboard the Panola, Captain Shepard sent the motor launch ahead of the ship, towing a sweep to ground truth any rocks that might trouble the 12-foot draft at the parent vessel. Late on the 21st of February, the Trapassi lay off the entrance to Nini Fjord, but gathering darkness, a backing wind and poorly charted waters indicated against attempting a passage, and Captain Shepard hove to through the brief night. After such a precautionary measure, it must have felt something of a swift kick in the fate glands when the engineer alerted Captain Shepard of an imminent engine failure as the ship crossed the sill of the Nini Fjord. But the machinery kept ticking over long enough to come to rest on the anchor in Back Bay. The BGLE hut lay just five miles away on Barry Island among the Debenhams and stood as sound and as dry as its counterpart in the Argentine Islands but Bingham's orders stipulated they establish a new hut on Stonington Island to contest, in that especially British form of passive aggression, the presence of East Base, established during the Usasei. East Base appeared in a bad way. The buildings remained structurally sound, but the year's worth of garbage piled by its main door, the exploded dogs chained to their spans, and the five-foot drift of snow in the machine shop indicated hard yards ahead of anyone seeking to reoccupy the site, which the Brits intended doing for the time it took to build their own accommodations. Walton got the stove lit in the accommodation block and applied himself to doing the dishes left behind during the Usasse evacuation and then cooking up regular feeds while his colleagues set to cleaning up the site. With the stove running non-stop, the hut gradually thawed after its five-year dormancy thick drift snow helping to insulate it against losing the heat the coal range put out. It took a long time drying out and the frozen rime of long ago exhaled breath melted and rained down as a disparate but interminable drizzle for the better part of a week. The dogs went ashore and into dog lines based on the packs they formed in their month at Deception Island. Careful attention to the dynamics on the dog lines told the eventual handlers which dog fit where in their sledging team. The Fids ran their dogs on the long fan, as had the Tabarin teams. I can go into the benefits and costs of each arrangement of dog traces and lines, but for now, know that the Brits adopted the long fan mostly because that's what Bingham used in Greenland and later in the BGLE, and that's a good enough reason to hold to the mode. More on this in an episode dedicated to dog team law and practice, perhaps. Every seal on the island's shores and within ready reach of the motor launch ended up dead and added to a meat cache earmarked to keep the dogs fed through the winter. Any time a seal hauled out, the high priority placed on keeping the dogs in good sledging fettle saw Fids down tools and do their utmost to secure the additional hundreds of kilograms of meat. Commander Bingham studied snow deposition patterns for the week it took to unload stores using the ship's scow and a temporary floating pier that Reg Freeman and Dougie Mason improvised just one of the many advantages of having members of the Royal Engineers in the team. With the hut and its surrounds borderline habitable, unloading went ahead 18 hours a day, the temporary stevedores catching catnaps on the shore between scow loads. 
Bingham, having selected a low snow deposition site, he figured the east base building's deep burial in snow and the resulting limited exits posed a fire risk to its occupants that he didn't want to replicate. British Antarctic stations remaining conscious of fire hazards to this day. 200 yards from the east base buildings and 60 yards from the shoreline. A concrete and brick foundation went down and when cured, or frozen, the two states offering the same result, received heavy wooden bearers bolted to the foundation. These formed the base on which the hut arose, jigsawed together with carefully numbered parts and far better blueprints than its predecessors at the Argentine and Debenham Islands. Aluminium foil insulation and tarred paper clad the exterior, held in place by a final layer of tongue and groove wooden boards. Similar insulating layers lined the interior. Heavy steel cables crisscrossed the roof line and anchored into the granite below the building's foundations to prevent the ensemble flying off to the land of Oz, as per regulations written out in the standing orders of the Cardinal Points Witches Local 412. These cables demonstrated their merit in the regular catabatic blow that raced off the peninsula and battered the island and the hut, referred to as the fumigator, also known as the fornicator in less formal company, because if you were caught outside in it, you were fucked. Fifteen days after their arrival, with the radio equipment installed and tested, and the essay stove, a slightly more fuel-efficient unit than the Arga used by the BGLE, but less romanticised by the British middle class, cooking the food, melting the water and radiating heat. Captain Shepard took the Trapassi north, carrying 60 tonnes of Antarctica in the holds as ballast for the radically empty ship. This geology load brought aboard the scow by the Newfoundlanders parking it below a steep scree slope hanging above the shoreline and dislodging the lower stones sufficient to precipitate a minor avalanche. The Newfies, not dead under the many thousands of tons of rock they luckily didn't spur into motion with their labour-saving ploy, seemed well pleased with themselves. The Trapassi sailed out of Back Bay, pausing briefly here and there to kill every seal the crew spotted on the nearby shorelines, in anticipation of the Stonington Island residents collecting them for the dogs at a later date. And the harbour just seems to be waking up, so I'm going to leave it there for the moment. Brackets, sarcasm, close brackets. I recently received explicit permission to continue writing and publishing my tirades. I didn't know I was publishing my tirades illicitly, but it's nice to know I have the requisite permission in writing now. So here's a big one. Brackets, end sarcasm, close brackets. I receive a fair bit of pushback for what I put out into the world. From music, to children, to podcasts, to online posts, to presentations, not everyone is as much in love with what I make as I am, and that's fine. But some of the feedback goes well beyond critique of the work and delves into pure ad hom, and that's not fine. I get death threats for having the temerity to question the role of religion in Australian politics and society, and I get gaslit by people who claim to otherwise have my back when I highlight abuses of privilege and opportunity in the organisations or workplaces I belong to. I don't have a lot of respects for gambits at either end of that spectrum, or anywhere between them. For those of you who don't know what gaslighting is, it's questioning the sanity of your interlocutor rather than addressing their concerns. It's used a lot in dismissing the problems caused by unrecognised privilege. The term gaslighting, 
denoting manipulation by means of calling into question the sanity of your interlocutor, arose from the 1938 Patrick Hamilton play Gaslight, later made into movies in both the UK and the USA. The male lead in the story is trying to steal jewels from his wife, and every time he goes to the attic to rummage for them, the use of the gaslighting there reduces the gas flow to the rest of the house. His wife notices the lights dimming, but he convinces her she's delusional, adding to her paranoia via sleight of hand to produce alarming evidence of unremembered kleptomania. He drives forward his agenda with increasingly bold attempts to make his wife question her sanity, seeking to get her committed and thus achieving power of attorney over her estate. It's harrowing stuff, and the 1944 film version starring Ingrid Bergman received seven Academy Award nominations, netting one for Ingrid Bergman's performance and one for production design. Gaslighting is one of the most insidious forms of manipulation, in part because it can badly dent the mental health of the person on the receiving end, even if the person trying to manipulate them never actually achieves their unwarranted goal, and partly because it's so common. Sometimes it's couched boldly with an outright, you're fucking crazy to think X or interpret my comments as meaning Y. But more often, it's introduced with a veneer of faux concern along the lines of, anyone with any sense would see things my way, and I worry about your long-term health if you still disagree with my carefully laid out case, which doesn't involve any profanity or hint of anger or other ugly emotions. Are you sure you don't need to seek support from a mental health professional? Fuck the attempt, no matter how it's couched. More often than a sincere attempt to draw someone's attention to their own genuine mental unsoundness, telling someone they're mentally unsound is usually an attempt to get that person to second-guess their own intellectual or emotional response to whatever they've spoken up about. It's cheap. It's disingenuous. It's harmful. It's everywhere you care to look. Watch out for it from your acquaintances and call it out for what it is. Watch out for it in your own responses to others and cut it the fuck out. According to recent correspondence with Heather Thorkelson, producer and host of the Antarctic Stories podcast, I should contact people I have a problem with privately in the first pass, I should support women more, not everyone's my enemy, and large numbers of people are working very hard at the thankless task of addressing the abuse of privilege and personnel perpetrated by Hadley Mearsham in the Antarctic tourism industry and its subsequent cover-up by Quark Expeditions, so it's more harmful for me to reiterate the problem with no new information than it would be for me to shut my mouth at this point. Fuck that noise on every bullet point. I found out about the abuse on its cover-up and how I handle that information is up to me. I don't trust most of the people I met in my time in the Antarctic tourism industry because I can't map who knew what and who helped in covering up the problem. So talking about it behind closed doors is an apparent road to nowhere for me. I don't support women because they are women. I support people who are worth supporting. I push back against attempts to oppress women for being women, which is the only coherent and defensible position I can arrive at. Supporting someone for being who they are is as nonsensical as oppressing someone for being who they are, so I can't reach automatically supporting women from a deductive perspective. The number of women in my life I'd watched die in a fire without lifting a finger to help is lower than the number of men whose immolation wouldn't move me, but it's still non-zero. So I can't get to automatically supporting women from an inductive perspective either. If you need someone to give you a cookie to do the right thing, 
you're not doing the right thing, you're trying to get a cookie. That people are working hard to find a path to address Hadley's abuse and its cover-up by Quark expeditions is news to me, but that they find the task thankless is of no interest. If something needs doing, do it, whether a cookie is on offer or not. You might get a cookie, but don't make your efforts conditional on the provision of that cookie. Do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I don't buy that my efforts began and ended with spurring members of the Polar Tour Guides Association to action. That they needed spurring when so many people knew about the problem is problematic in itself. But if someone hears me speaking out about the abuse and its cover-up and makes a decision minimising the likelihood of their experiencing a Type 2 error, which in this case would comprise being assaulted by Hadley Mearsham while under his leadership and the matter being covered up by the company they contracted to, that's a big fucking deal. To claim I actually do more harm than good in speaking out about it publicly requires evidence beyond the assertion. So I'm here, repeating the facts, without any new information. I told all of this to Heather in private correspondence. I also told her to fuck off in no uncertain terms. I'm happy to publish all of that correspondence. I take words seriously, and I never write or say anything I'd be ashamed to put in front of my parents, my partner, my children, or a court of law. Heather responded that she felt embarrassed at having defended me against people seeking to discredit me, which was news to me. That people are trying to discredit me lies somewhat at odds of their assurance that not everyone is my enemy. Clearly the number of people I should treat as my enemy is, in her personal experience, non-zero. Given the number of spats and disputes my inability to tolerate bullying and abuse place me in, and the aforementioned death threats I receive, it's fair to say I have more people I should regard as enemies than the average Antarctic history podcaster, and it's no surprise that the gain on my gaslightometer is turned way up high. I like Heather's podcast. Antarctic Stories is well produced, features interesting guests, and the first episode of the second series is an outright banger, featuring astounding tales from below the chilly waters at both ends of the planet. I don't like Heather because she tried to silence me on a matter I think is important, bemoaning my tone and mode, but never supplying mechanism or evidence to support her assertion that I do more harm than good. In the nine months since I first spoke out publicly about these matters, I've heard nothing from anyone on the issue other than condemnation for my speaking out. My posts were removed from the PTGA Facebook group, and all outgoing emails have received no response. If speaking out prompted action, that's great, but until I see compelling evidence that the problem can't repeat, I'll keep making the same statement without any additional information, whether Heather likes it or not. Perhaps there's a whisper network in play. Perhaps there's a Canadian Government Royal Commission. I don't know what's going on because no one's communicating with me. And that's fine, but it doesn't provide me with any way to know which way to jump. Whisper networks are better than nothing, but I won't pretend they're the best possible response to abuse of privilege and people. They're what we need to turn to when there's no other option, so I'd be disappointed if that's the best response the PTGA can manage. So I continue putting out signal where I otherwise hear none. I repeat the same message because not everyone I might reach with that signal has yet been reached. If you don't like that, I don't care. If you want me to curb that behaviour, provide evidence that I should. Speaking out about this cost me a lot of friends and, if people are trying to discredit me within the PTGA, likely contracting opportunities. 
It's not like I did this for shits and giggles or to make life unpleasant for anyone because I thought it might be good for an anecdote in my series. If any listener knows someone who's white-anting me or my efforts, please get in touch and let me know all about it. Forwarded emails, screenshots of online dialogue, or recorded audio or video of people defaming me without good reason could lead to a successful civil suit for damages to potential earnings. If someone takes issue with the things I've said or written, they're welcome to a right of reply on this series. I'll line up the Zencaster session at a time convenient to them, record their beef, and broadcast it without edit. But I'll defend myself vigorously against any incorrect or dunderheaded gambits. And tone trolling doesn't count as a rejoinder, because I don't care if you care for my tone. I've been through this shit with universities that didn't care about their lecturers fucking their students, with secular bodies that didn't care their leaders acted like the clergy, and with family members who thought blood was more important than abuse. You never have to tolerate deliberately caused unnecessary harm, and you don't have to put up with people covering it up. Not everyone's my enemy, but I can count the people I trust on my digits. The evidence available to date doesn't allow for anything else.